Good evening. It's uh, 8 o'clock, and the room is full, so um, we can get uh, underway. My name is Simon Levin. I'm glad to welcome you to another year of public lectures. Uh, this room is getting quite full, and the lecture will be simulcast. So um, if people are coming in and have difficulty finding seats, I think it's room 46. Is that right, Amy, where the uh, simulcast will take place? Um, it's a, a pleasure to welcome you, and as uh, you came in, I hope that those of you who are interested were able to get a listing of this year's lectures. Let me, at the beginning, acknowledge uh, the work of Amy Bordvik, who is the administrator of the uh, series and has uh, uh, done all of the hard work in putting together an excellent uh, schedule. And we're very fortunate tonight uh, to have Andy Knoll here to give the opening lecture. This lecture is part of uh, a series that goes back a long way of lectures endowed by Lewis Clark Van Uxem. There are lectures that are uh, done jointly with Princeton University Press and will result in a, in a book that the press will produce. And it's my pleasant task to introduce to you Professor Gerd Keller of Geological Sciences, who will uh, introduce tonight's speaker. I'm not the speaker, I'm only introducing. It is indeed a great pleasure to introduce Professor Andy Knoll as today's Louis Clark Vanaxum lecturer. Andy Knoll is professor and chairman of the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. His major research interests are in the early evolution of life, and he really means early, as early as 600 million years ago. This is not an easy task, for there is little evidence preserved of such ancient life. And indeed, there are only a few rocks as old as 600 million years or older. The search for such ancient rocks has led Professor Noll to rather exotic places, such as the Arctic Circle, Greenland, Siberia, and China, and Australia. His, his discoveries have been astounding. And have revolutionized the way we view the early evolution of life. As a tribute to his outstanding research accomplishments, he has received numerous honors. Let me just mention a few. He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's also a member of the American Philosophical Society. He has also received the very prestigious Charles Doolittle Walcott Medal of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. In addition, he also has an honorary doctor degree from his alma mater, Lehigh University, and another honorary doctor's degree from Uppsala University in Sweden. We are indeed fortunate to have Professor Andy Knoll with us today. He will give a three-lecture series sponsored by Princeton University and Princeton University Press. The lectures are based on his upcoming book to be published shortly by Princeton University Press. Tonight is his first lecture on reconstructing the early history of life on Earth. Andy? 
Thank you, Gerda, and, and thank you all for coming out on a rainy evening. I'd actually like to start with at least brief mention of a poem by Walt Whitman that, that takes place on a starry evening. And you'll forgive me if I take off my glasses, because I can either see you or I can see my notes, and it's probably better for all of us if I can see my notes. In his brief poem, when I heard the learned astronomer, Walt Whitman recounts an evening spent at a scientific lecture. Facts and figures swirl about the hall, sort of oppressively weighting the air, until at last he's compelled to flee into the night sky and replace his, or replenish his spirit beneath a canopy of stars. You know, although written more than 100 years ago, that poem resonates, or at least the sentiment of that poem resonates with a surprisingly large contemporary audience. Earlier attempts to understand the universe and our place in it distilled nature's mystery into a powerful narrative. Science, Whitman implies, replaces awe with statistics. Well, how sad, and, and in a sense, how aggravating. To me, the scientific chronicle of early evolution is in fact rich in both narrative verve and mystery. It's really a voyage of discovery, a voyage that takes place over some four billion years across sulfurous oceans beneath asphyxiating atmospheres, past iron-breathing bacteria and microchimeras, to arrive at last at the familiar world, a world of oxygen and ozone, of forested valleys, and of animals. Nor is science's creation story complete in its, in its present telling. One of my favorite analogies of, of, of science is by Chet Ramo, who is a professor of physics at Stonehill College and science columnist for the Boston Globe. He has this wonderful metaphor in which sci scientific knowledge is viewed as being an island in a sea of mystery. And, and one of, I think, the most insightful corollaries of this metaphor is that as knowledge grows, the shoreline, that is the interface between understanding and uncertainty, grows commensurately. There's a great deal, as you'll find out over the next few nights, that we don't know about the origin and early evolution of, of life on this planet, and I'm sure that will be true of our grandchildren as well. However, that's not such a bad thing, because science, of course, is not a codification of what we know, but really, as an enterprise, as a disciplined way of uh, asking about what we don't understand. Well, as, as Goethe said, um, I am in the middle of what, for me, is a laborious task of, of writing a book on the early evolution of life. And in putting that book together, and at least in part in presenting these three lectures, I have three major goals in mind. The first is the obvious one, and that is to construct a compelling narrative of early life on Earth. There was a piece in the New York Times just a few weeks ago by James McPherson, well known to a local audience, in which he quoted the American historian C. Van Woodward. And Woodward said as follows, Narrative history is the end product of what historians do. The narrative is where they put it together and make sense for the reader. Well, that in part is my effort to really um, tell the story of the early evolution of, of life on Earth in a way that will force me to, quote, put it all together and, and make sense of it for the reader. I think it's an engrossing narrative. 
and one that goes beyond academic entertainment to provide a critical framework for understanding the earth and life that surround us today. Our contemporary biological diversity, and we ourselves are in fact a product of some four billion years of prior evolution, so that by coming to grips with this long evolutionary history, I think we come to understand something of our own place in the world, including our place as planetary stewards. The second goal is to tell this story in a particular way. Uh, the history of life is commonly recounted as a naturalist generations of Abraham, with bacteria, trilobites, and dinosaurs standing in for the succession of prophets. This sort of catalog of received wisdom can be memorized, but there really isn't a lot to understand. What I will try to do is relate the deciphering of life's history as an enterprise, one in which rocks and fossils are encountered in the field, sometimes in remote corners of the globe. They're analyzed in the laboratory and then interpreted in light of processes, but not necessarily conditions that are observable today. It's one thing to say that cyanobacteria lived on tidal flats 1,500 million years ago, and quite another thing to understand why we interpret certain fossils as cyanobacterial, how we know that certain rocks were deposited in tidal flat environments, and why we think the tidal flats were laid down 1,500 million years ago in the first place. So my overall aim then is to integrate discoveries in paleontology my own field, and in some ways the most traditional of um, scientific pursuits, with emerging insights that range from molecular biology to geochemistry. And then finally, at the end of the, the task, I want to step back and explore not just the contingent details of life's history, but ask whether we can identify any general principles that shine through the haze of um, historical particulars. Are there grand themes that we should try to understand? The astrobiologist in me, really eager for a glimpse of rocks collected on Mars, would really like to know what attributes of terrestrial biology might prove to be general features of life wherever we might find it, and what might turn out to be specific features of our own particular planetary history. We don't know the answer to that question, but in no small part, the way in that we address that question will um, govern the way we actually search for life elsewhere in the universe. One clear theme of evolutionary history is the cumulative nature of biological diversity. Individual species may come and go, their extinctions emphasizing the fragility of populations in a world of competition and environmental change. But the history of guilds that is of fundamentally distinct morphological and physiological ways of making a living is one of accrual. The long view of evolution is unmistakably one of accumulation through time governed by rules of ecosystem function. Another grand theme is the coevolution of the Earth and its life. Organisms and environments have both changed dramatically through time, and more often than not, they've changed in concert with one influencing the other. In fact, the picture that emerges of evolution from consideration of the totality of Earth history is one of interaction, of continuing interplay between genetic possibility and environmental opportunity. Life emerged early in our planet's history and evolved through time in concert with Earth's surface environments. 
And this long-term coevolutionary view of biological history provides what might be the grandest theme of all. That is, that life was born of planetary processes, is sustained by planetary processes, and through time can actually emerge as a suite of important planetary processes in its own right. To me, that's actually a remarkable thought. Uh, my eight-year-old son, Bobby, is uh, want to actually describe anything he finds interesting as awesome. Um, in this case, I think that would be uh, an absolutely, literally correct way of, of uh, reacting to that sort of view. Um, awe and humility attended the telling of earlier creation stories, and I think they're appropriate companions to science's version as well. So with that in mind, let's begin. Okay, what, we're, what we see first is a series of cliffs exposed along the Katuikan River in northern Siberia. At river level, oh, there we go. At river level, we see a series of limestone beds laid down in a series of environments similar to those that you might find today in the Bahama Islands about 545 million years ago. Fossils are rare in these rocks, and the only ones that we see are very simple remains, very simple meanders of organisms that crawled across these ancient trackways. About three meters above river level, there's a shift in sedimentation to a series of sandstones deposited along a shore face. We know from exposures to the east of here that these rocks were laid down 544 plus or minus 1 million years ago. Above that, we have evidence of a major incursion of sea level so that we go very rapidly into fairly deep offshore environments represented by these shales that weather out in the cliff. But as we ascend this cliff, the environments that are represented get shallower and shallower until by the time we come up to about this level, we are once again in uh, environments that were laid down very, very close to shore. In fact, by the time we get up to this level, we have evidence that the sea completely abandoned the region and there was erosion cut by a series of, of rivers. Above that, then, we have another flooding of the environment uh, up through to the top of this cliff, which might be 150 meters up. Fossils are rare in these rocks, and the first fossils we actually see of any consequence are small millimeter-sized cones of calcite that have a rather interesting three-part symmetry, which differentiates them from most animals living today. But as we go upward through this cliff, we find that the abundance and diversity of these skeletal um, elements increases. So till by the time we get up to about this level, we have nearly 100 different kinds of skeletal elements. Some of them are as problematic as these conical fossils at the base of the succession, but others include the recognizably spiral shells of mollusks and a little bit higher up, the segmented carapaces of, of arthropods. At the same time, 
we have a record of animal behavior that's encrypted in tracks and trails and burrows of animals. And these, independently of the skeletal record, show a tremendous increase in abundance, in complexity, in variety, again, as we go up this cliff. Well, what we're looking at here is the unfolding of animal diversity, popularly known as the Cambrian explosion. As well as any rocks found anywhere, these rocks document the unfurling of, in essence, a modern world, a world in which animals swim and walk beneath an atmosphere of breathable air. Now, Charles Darwin thought about this pattern a great deal and was actually quite concerned by it. Um, you might think that Darwin, like his modern intellectual descendants, would have seen in the fossil record really the, the documentation and of, of his, his theory. But in fact, if you read The Origin of Species, the two chapters that he devotes to geology are in fact a rather carefully worded apology for the fact that the fossil record does not in fact show the kinds of uh, gradual transformations from one taxon to another that he would have expected to see. And if Darwin was disquieted by the lack of intermediate forms in the geological record, he was truly concerned by the pattern at the beginning of the Cambrian period. That is where we see the nearly simultaneous appearance in many parts of the world of abundant complex animal life. In fact, if you, one can quote from the, uh, the Origin of Species in which he says, there's another and allied difficulty which is much greater. I allude to the manner in which numbers of species of the same group suddenly appear in the lowest known fossiliferous rocks. The case must at present remain inexplicable and may be truly urged as a valid argument against the views herein entertained. Well, of course, Darwin does offer an explanation. That's the one that you might expect him to offer. And that is that there must be massive record failure at the base of these fossiliferous rocks. It isn't that there weren't uh, early ancestors to the trilobites and other complex animals that appear in the Cambrian, but rather that their records lay in older beds that are deeply buried, destroyed, or undiscovered. In another memorable passage, Darwin writes the following. He says, if my theory be true, it is indisputable that long before the lowest Silurian, and we would substitute Cambrian for that, stratum was deposited, long periods elapsed, as long as or probably far longer than the whole interval from the Silurian age to the present day. And that during that time, during these vast yet quite unknown periods of time, the world swarmed with living creatures. Well, back along the Katuikan River, we can think about Darwin's statement and actually begin to put it to the test. It turns out that these beds are not entirely flat-lying. Uh, tectonic actions millions of years ago have actually tilted them slightly so that they dip downward to the west. What that means is that if we walk to the east along this outcrop, along the river, we will find the farther we walk, the more we see exposures of older and older beds 
that were deposited before the lowermost beds we see at this place. Well, if we walk about 10 kilometers upriver, we actually find the base of this succession that contains the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary and the Cambrian explosion. You can see right along here, there's a sharp break in sediment at the base of that succession. And we can ask, is that the end of the road? Can we look in no older rocks than this in this region? Well, you can see very clearly that it is not the end of the road. In fact, this Precambrian-Cambrian boundary succession actually sits upon a slightly tilted succession of sedimentary rocks that is older. And this succession itself is more than 1,000 meters thick, beautifully preserved, and offers the same opportunities for the discovery of fossils and a biological record that we get from the Cambrian fossil-bearing rocks ourselves. And it turns out that's true really all over the world. The base of the Cambrian is not the end of the road for paleontological exploration, not in Siberia, not in other places where rocks one, two, or even three billion years older than those that mark the Cambrian are preserved. Well, if that's true, what should we expect to find? The geological record actually documents and gives us our documentary sense of the history of life. But if we want to get some expectation of what we might find in rocks that have not yet been prospected, we actually really want to look in a second uh, evolutionary record, and that's the record of comparative biology. Now, this is a very particular and now very famous icon of, of uh, comparative biology that's really only become available in the last 20 years or so. In a groundbreaking paper published in 1967, Emil Zuckerkandel and uh, Linus Pauling proposed that molecules can be read as documents of evolutionary history. Just as the uh, anatomical structures of limbs or skulls can be used to uh, document descent with modification, Darwin's term, so too can the chemical structures of DNA and proteins be used to infer the relationships among organisms. Carl Woese at the University of Illinois built decisively on this conceptual foundation. Woese had spent the early years of his scientific career working on ribosomes, that is the, the cell, the sites within the cell where proteins are manufactured. And he knew that all organisms contain ribosomes. All ribosomes contain uh, RNA molecules as well as some proteins. And so that by comparing the molecular sequence signature, that is just the sequence of bases that make up the RNA, or in later times the gene that codes for the RNA, he could in fact derive a tree of life worthy of the name. This is a version of that tree. It is a, a genealogical statement of the relatedness of, in theory at least, all living organisms based on molecular sequence comparisons of small subunit ribosomal RNA genes. I should say that any place you find two biologists, you'll find some disagreement on the details of this tree. But I think it's also fair to say that most biologists would 
admit that the ability even to construct these trees and argue about relationships among organisms as disparate as e. coli and redwoods is a major achievement. If you look at the general architecture of this tree, you'll see at first glance there are three principal branches. At the top, since this tree was actually drawn by a eukaryote, are the eukarya, that is, organisms that have membrane-bound nuclei. One other major branch is the bacteria of our common experience. And it came as a real surprise 20 years ago when Woese proposed that, in fact, there was another branch of simple, broadly bacteria-like cells called the archaea that were, in fact, as different genealogically and in terms of their cell biology from the conventional bacteria as bacteria are from eukaryotes. The next thing to notice about this tree is that there's a certain logic to its progression. The earliest branches of the bacterial branch of this tree and the earliest branches of the archaeal uh, limb, those that are outlined in, in uh, heavy lines, are all made up of what are sometimes called hyperthermophilic organisms. That is, organisms that live obligately above 80 degrees C. You can think about that, about that in essence, that these limbs of the tree are made up of organisms that do not grow at the temperatures required to pasteurize milk, not because those temperatures are too hot, but because they're too cold. Those kind of organisms are limited to a fairly small number of environments today. Most of them live in hot springs environments where there are strong local sources of chemical gradients where uh, the organisms can actually gain the energy they need for metabolism from chemical reactions. Photosynthesis is found in those groups that have a P next to their name. That is, within the bacteria, it's some of the younger branches of the major branches of the bacterial limb that sport photosynthetic organisms. What that suggests, then, is that photosynthesis is not the primordial metabolism that uh, makes biology work, but rather the great ecological liberator that allowed life to expand from beyond these local high-energy environments of, of hot springs and to really cover the Earth. The other thing to notice is that the multicellular organisms of our common experience, the animals, the plants, and to a certain extent the fungi, are restricted to the distal tips of one branch of the tree. In fact, all of the evolutionary unfurling that's epitomized by the Cambrian sections in Siberia takes place within a portion of this small twig named animals. What that means, of course, is that one can infer a great deal of antecedent evolution that took place prior to the diversification of animals. And of course, the other obvious thing is that antecedent diversification, the deep history of life, if you will, is microbial. Now, there's a second way that you can read this tree. And that is because most organisms and most microorganisms in particular are closely associated with specific environmental conditions, 
one can at least in part read this tree as uh, an inference of Earth's environmental history. So, for example, most of the early branching forms in at least the archaeal and bacterial limbs of the tree consist of organisms that do not use oxygen in metabolism. Many of these things not only don't use oxygen in metabolism, but can be killed by oxygen in concentrations as low as part per million. As we go then to more uh, distal branches on the tree, we find organisms that use oxygen in metabolism, but thrive at relatively low concentrations of oxygen. And again, only at the tips of the tree do we find organisms like ourselves that absolutely require high concentrations of oxygen for metabolism. So in a sense then, this tree makes predictions. It makes predictions for the deep history of life. It makes predictions for the deep history of Earth's environments. However, it has one disconcerting feature. And that is, if the deep history of life was played out by algae and protozoans and bacteria, for the most part, tiny and fragile objects, can we, in fact, hope to reconstruct something of their history from the geologic record? Well, in fact, we can. We're going to, the first place we're going to start to look at this issue is this uh, moderately forbidding looking place called Spitsbergen. Spitsbergen, as some of you will know, is an island that sits about halfway between the northern tip of Norway and the North Pole. Uh, this is Spitsbergen in July, which tells you something important about working there. And it is this beautiful study in gray and white. The white, of course, are these wonderful glaciers that have eroded uh, great cliffs of, of, in this case, limestone. The gray is the rocks themselves, which are exposed in sometimes remarkable uh, cliffs throughout the island. It's a, in some ways, actually a very, very beautiful spot um, vegetation is sparse, but there are colorful wildflowers. There are miniature reindeer that graze on the miniature plants. There are seals and walruses sort of sprawled languorously on ice flows. There are polar bears, which spend most of their time hunting the seals, but are in fact curious about round yellow objects sitting on hills which actually causes paleontologists to sleep fairly lightly on this island. Now, why did we go to this place? The reason we went to this place is because we have exposures of rocks like this. Each of these swatches of color is about 300 meters thick, and they are part of a 7,000 meter thick succession of sedimentary rocks laid down between six and 800 million years ago in a series of tropical to subtropical environments. If we follow these beds up around the corner, just past where you can see, we actually have beds that document the Cambrian explosion and have fossils not unlike those that are found in that cliff in northern Siberia. But beneath that, in these rocks and rocks beneath them, there are no shells, no trace fossils, no tracks or trails of, 
of animals, no record of animals whatsoever. But again, if we look at the logic of the tree of life, as we go into these older rocks, perhaps animals are actually the wrong search image. Maybe our search image instead should be to look for the record of microbial life. Well, let's just focus for a moment on this little uh, bed scene here. Uh, sedimentary geologists learn to read rocks as a foreign language. Uh, sediments carry a record of their environmental history in both the bedding features and textures of the rocks, as well as some of the fossils that they contain. In fact, sedimentary geology is this vast repository of observation with a little bit of theory and experiment that uh, lends its substance. What we see here are a series of laminated beds in a carbonate rock called dolomite, very similar to limestone. And these laminated beds are very similar to types of beds that you can find accumulating today in places like the Bahama Banks, where they are formed when microbial communities, microbial mats spread out across a tidal flat area, get inundated with sediment, grow up through the sediment, reestablish the mat, and have a repeating history. Also, there's one feature of this rock that sedimentary geologists would identify in a second. Uh, this, what looks like a cone, is actually a cross-section through a ridge. Uh, geologists call this TP structures for uh, obvious reasons. And those kinds of features are formed specifically in more exposed parts of warm subtropical to tropical carbonate tidal flats. There are other features of this bed that uh, inform the sedimentological eye that we are dealing with a series of rocks that accumulated in some of the more exposed parts of a tropical to subtropical tidal flat. Now, it turns out because carbonates tend to recrystallize with time and obliterate the textures that were originally found in the rocks, we don't really have much of a fossil record from these uh, carbonates. However, if you look at these black nodules here, that's where to look for fossils. The nodules are of silica, SiO2, uh, commonly called chert. And these chert nodules actually were nucleated within the carbonate sediment soon after they were laid down. And the nodules then actually grew and grew at the expense of, of the carbonate essentially encompassing and preserving all of the original textures, both physical and biological, that were present in the original carbonate rock. So that if we take a thin section, just a paper-thin section of this chert, and look at it under the microscope, we in fact see the fossils of the mat-building organisms that are responsible for the textures of the rock. For example, you can see these filaments, each of them about eight microns in diameter. And things like this are conventionally, and I think um, properly in this case, interpreted as the fossils of a microorganism such as this. This is a cyanobacterium, which means it is a bacteria, bacterium that is capable of 
producing green plant type photosynthesis. That's really a misnomer, at least for reasons that, if not before, will become apparent tomorrow night that it's really green plants that do cyanobacterial type photosynthesis and not the reverse. But what we have here is a series of cells lined up in a filament and the cells proper are um, encompassed in an extracellular sheath made up of polysaccharides with chelated iron within them. Now it turns out that the cells proper are easily decayed by bacteria after death, but like the shells of an oyster or the bones of a vertebrate, these extracellular sheaths are relatively resistant to decay and therefore have a much higher probability than the cells per se of accumulating in the geologic record. So just the way the record of marine invertebrate animals in younger beds is in no small part a record of shells, so too is the earlier record of at least cyanobacterial microorganisms a record of these uh, relatively decay-resistant extracellular sheaths. Well, okay, uh, that's been seen before by other people. Uh, in fact, one of the things that was noticed very early in the history of the study of uh, pre-Cambrian rocks was that many of the fossils kind of looked like modern cyanobacteria. Well, does that mean that the organisms that made these fossils were in cellular detail and in metabolic detail similar to living cyanobacteria? Or is it simply that these are morphologically very simple cells and that similarity in form is really hiding a host of physiological differences. Well, there's one nice population preserved in Spitsbergen that helps us get at that issue. Here is an individual preserved, again, along this tidal flat gradient, uh, six to 800 million years old in Spitsbergen. This is about 30 microns from stem to stern. There was a single cell here, now pretty much collapsed into this amorphous goo. But look at the preservation of the extracellular envelopes. Clearly in life, this cell secreted a series of envelopes that are elongated in the downward direction, such that in life, this thing actually made its own stalk, and a stalk that allowed it to keep pace with slowly accumulating sediments and stay at the sediment water interface. Now, in the lower part of this tidal flat gradient in Spitsbergen, we find these as isolated individuals along with um, a wide variety of other types of microorganisms. But in the upper parts, the more exposed parts of that tidal flat, we actually find crusts, sort of centimeter scale crusts that are made up of monospecific populations of these cells that form these sort of sediment excluding little knobs on the sediment surface. In fact, by looking at a series of these, we can infer something of the life cycle of these microorganisms. It's not terribly complex. We have single cells that uh, became established on a substrate. They grew. As they grew, they secreted the stalks. Once the cells reached a particular size, they underwent a series of binary cell divisions without intervening growth to produce reproductive bodies that were dispersed and the cycle started again. 
Well, that turns out to be a fair amount to know about a microorganism that lived uh, six to eight hundred million years ago. And it allows us to ask a simple question. Can we find organisms living today that have the same morphology and life cycle as that inferred from these fossils? Well, it turns out if you go to any of the compendia of cyanobacterial systematics, you'll find that there are some things that are broadly similar, but no really close matches among uh, formally described cyanobacteria. But we knew one other thing about this fossil population. That is, we knew because of the sedimentary uh, record within which we were interpreting it, that these Precambrian organisms lived in the upper part of an intertidal zone in a carbonate-producing, warm, subtropical to tropical environment. Well, fortunately, uh, for those of us who work in Spitsbergen in the summer, the modern analogs are the Bahama Banks. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a living. Uh, <laughs> we went down and went to those physical environments deemed on the basis of sedimentological reconstruction to be most similar to the ancient environments that in which these fossils were found. Well, what did we find? We find that in those environments, we have little crusts, little black crusts forming on the surface. There's a lens cap for scale. And not surprisingly, those crusts were made of organisms like this, that is, single-celled stalked cyanobacteria that in all details of morphology, life cycle, and environmental distribution are indistinguishable from the Precambrian fossils. This is a case of a newly discovered living cyanobacterium whose existence was predicted on the basis of six to 800 million year old fossils. It is, by the way, not a solitary example of this phenomenon. We've now, uh, we being, in, in this case, uh, my friend Steve Goyevich at Boston University and some of his students have actually identified seven or eight newly described living cyanobacteria that were found based on the distribution of fossils in the Precambrian record. Well, that allows us to put some teeth into this old saw that suggests that some ancient fossils look like cyanobacteria. The fact that environmental distribution can be used as a proxy for certain aspects of um, physiology really suggests then that indeed those ancient fossils were formed by organisms that were not only in terms of morphology and life cycles similar to living cyanobacteria, but to a reasonable extent, physiologically similar as well, which means that the cyanobacteria around us today are indeed the close descendants of organisms that lived on the early Earth. Well, it turns out that if you go along this tidal flat gradient and look at the different fossils found on the ancient tidal flat, most of them appear to have been cyanobacterial. Now, that's not too surprising, and it's not too surprising for two reasons. One is if you go to comparable environments today, you still see cyanobacteria dominating many of the environments. And also, 
We know that whereas cyanobacteria have these organic hard parts, if you will, that are relatively easily preserved in the geologic record, most of the host of other bacteria and archaea and protozoans that are found with them do not. So there is a, the, the processes of fossilization themselves selectively open the window on cyanobacterial biology and selectively shut it on some other types of biology. On the other hand, we do see in some parts of this tidal flat a glimmer of a rather different biology. For example, there are little tidal channels that were formed within this tidal flat, which were flushed by water coming in from offshore environments. And in those, we see things like this. This is about 100 microns long now, rounded at this end, a distinct apical collar at this end. We now know, based on some truly wonderfully preserved materials of a similar type from the Grand Canyon, that these are the fossils of testate amoebae, uh, a type of uh, protozoan that's commonly found in uh, both freshwater and marine environments today. What we would like to do is really go offshore, get off the tidal flat itself, and look for a record of biology in uh, more or less subtidal, constantly wetted uh, environments along this Precambrian coastline. And we can find a record of those environments in this kind of rock. What you see here is a series of mudstones with a fair amount of organic carbon preserved in them, interbedded with carbonate rocks. And it turns out that when one, again, prepares these rocks, they are full, in the first instance, 20 micron scale, of tiny fossils that very much look as though they may be cyanobacterial. Again, that's not too surprising. But they also contain fossils like this. Now that's 50 microns, so this is nearly half a millimeter across. What we're looking at here is an opaque inner shell, which if you can just see, was, it was studded with spines as well as longer processes that connected it to an outer vesicle. The biology of this is not by any means certain, but there's no question that this is the fossil of a eukaryotic organism. Not only that, but uh, my then student, Nick Butterfield, now on the faculty at the University of Cambridge, found in these rocks macroscopic, that is visible to the naked eye, uh, thalluses or, or bodies of algae. Here's a small part of one, 25 microns for scale, where you can see these elongate cell-like um, units, very, very well-developed septa between units, and in fact, a rather distinct and stereotyped type of branching. Very similar organisms are found today in a group of green algae called, uh, this is Clodophora and its relatives. And indeed, all the features that we find in this late Precambrian population can be found within specific uh, uh, Clodophora-like green algae today. So, the first news is good. That is, despite the fragility of algae and protozoa and bacteria, some of them at least, under favorable circumstances, will lead a record of body fossils that we, excuse me, can hope to interpret. But of those 7,000 meters of rocks in Spitsbergen, relatively few of them, perhaps one or 200 of those meters, actually contain 
cellularly preserved microfossils. So to get a better sense of the ubiquity of life at this time, we have to go to some other structures. If you look at this cliff, you can see that there are some patches of beige-colored rock, each of them about three meters high. These are reefs. In fact, they're microbial reefs. And when we look at them carefully, we see that the, the reef itself is made up of these cylinders of laminated carbonate with the laminae sort of bowed upward into a dome. These kind of features are widely distributed in Precambrian carbonates, not only here, but wherever they're found. And they're interpreted by analogy with structures being formed today. This is a place called Shark Bay, Western Australia, which is about as close to the mecca of early life as it's possible to imagine. And what we see here in Shark Bay are domed structures called stromatolites, which are accreting along this tidal flat environment. And if you cut one of those stromatolites in half, you'll see that it is a record of bowed upward laminae. We know from observation that the way these laminae accrete is for a microbial community to spread across a surface, to be covered by a veneer of fine-grained sediments. And then the parts of the mat population grow upward through that sediment, reestablish a mat, and trapping and binding the material in place. And as the mat accretes upward at depth, bacteria that are decomposing um, the, the cells that are left behind end up causing the precipitation of calcium carbonate cements. So this is really a record of continued accretion that tells us about the former presence of a microbial community. We really don't find microfossils in most Precambrian stromatolites, but most of them are interpreted by analogy to the processes we can see today as trace fossils of microbial mats. That is, they are essentially like Friday's footprint in the sand, if you will. We can tell something of the presence, but not much of the character of the organisms that made them. Nonetheless, what they do tell us is that microbial communities were found in essentially every environment within the photic zone, from the most exposed parts of tidal flats down into deep uh, subtidal marine environments. Now, it turns out that even more ubiquitous than these stromatolytic trace fossils is organic matter, mostly present in concentrations of less than 1% of the, the weight of, of these rocks. Within that organic matter, there are certain individually preserved molecules of known biosynthetic origin, so-called biomarker molecules so that uh, eukaryotic organisms often have components of their membranes which are relatively easily preserved and identified. These components are the geologically um, stable derivatives of sterols, uh, which cholesterol is the, the one best known to most of you. Um, if you look in the organic matter in Spitsbergen, one finds a variety of so-called steranes, these geologically derived forms, that tell us about a diversity of algae, some of which are not preserved by uh, morphologically. Also, bacterial lipids 
tell us about groups that are not likely to be preserved morphologically. For example, no one has ever found a body fossil of an Archean, yet the very distinctive uh, lipids of Archaeans are preserved widely in the sedimentary record and tell us something about the antiquity of this group. Finally, there's even one more uh, signature of biology that's more widespread than any other. And that is that individual microorganisms are tiny, but collectively their physiologies can uh, essentially alter the composition of the environments in which they're found. One good example of this is the process of fixing CO2, if you will, fixing carbon dioxide into organic matter in photosynthesis. What this slide is meant to depict is that when these balls, which are supposed to represent carbon dioxide, are fixed into organic matter, there is a so-called kinetic isotope effect such that CO2 that contains the lighter stable isotope of carbon, carbon-12, is fixed into organic matter in preference to CO2 that contains the heavier stable isotope, C13. As a result of that, if you look at organic matter made by photosynthesis, you'll find that the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 in that organic matter will actually differ from the same ratio in limestones formed in the same environments. It differs by something that's commonly called fractionation. And you can think of fractionation as really, well, the fractionation is determined principally by the biochemistry of CO2 fixation, so that we have a proxy for physiological processes. It's also somewhat under the influence of growth conditions and CO2 availability. But to a first approximation, we can look at the isotopic composition of carbonate and organic matter in those Spitsbergen rocks and actually determine that these ecosystems, like modern ones, were driven primarily by photosynthesis. You can do the same thing with uh, aspects of sulfur chemistry. For example, one can look at the oxidized and reduced forms of sulfur in sediments, gypsum and pyrite, and fool's gold, if you will, and because the major processes that causes fractionation of sulfur isotopes is bacterial sulfate reduction, a very important process in today's ocean, one also has a proxy for this type of process. Okay, then let's finish up then on Spitsbergen. What we find then is that although there are no record of animals or tracks or trails or burrows of animals. In fact, the fingerprint of biology is all over these rocks. Well, that being the case, let's end up for tonight then by uh, going past the master's exam and going to the PhD. And for that, we have to go to North Pole. Now, this North Pole is probably not the one you would have expected to see based on the previous slides. This is North Pole, Western Australia. And it's called North Pole because some of the hottest temperatures ever recorded on the face of the Earth were recorded here. And so, with characteristic humor, the Australians uh, decided to christen this as they did. The, the reason we he we're here is not because of this climatic optimum, but rather because these hills um, are built of a series of volcanic and sedimentary rocks that accumulated in a shallow seaway three and a half 
billion years ago. We know from the much younger Spitzbergen rocks that potentially the fingerprint of microbial biology might be all over these rocks, but what in fact do we see? Well, I was gonna just show this slide just to show you why it was very difficult for a person like me to work in, uh, in Australia. Uh, I spent most of my formative years working in the Arctic where the rocks are all subtly different shades of gray and I became very adept at reading the geology of rocks at a distance based on those shades. When I went to Australia and everything's red, it was practically impossible, but fortunately I was in the company of, of uh, this fellow, a man named Roger Buick, who was then a, a postdoc of mine at Harvard and is now a professor at Sydney. And, and Roger has really worked out the geology of these rocks exquisitely well over the last 15 years. Well, what do we find? Well, at first we get very excited because in these rocks what we find are stromatolites. That is laminated, domed carbonates, the sine qua known of microbial trace fossils, if you will. But are they? It turns out that you can get laminated, domed carbonates wherever you have waters that are highly charged with calcium and carbonate um, ions. That is, if you have a very oversaturated ocean with respect to carbonate minerals, you can get this sort of thing coming out of the oceans simply by episodic precipitation. Now here, for example, are some rocks that were studied by my colleague at MIT, John Grotzinger. Each of these is, well, it's five centimeters across from there to there. Here you can see these little centimeter-sized digits. They have all the hallmarks of stromatolites, that is, these laminated structures that dome upward. They have been described and interpreted as the products of microbial mats, but in some cases, you can find these exquisitely well-preserved on a microscopic scale, and what they are is simply stacked crystal fans. There is no evidence that these were templated for by microbial mats, and in fact, microbial influence of any kind, um, although possible, is, is not determined. And this is my favorite slide. I love to show this slide to stromatolite enthusiasts because it's a pic picture of a, of a rock that has all the hallmarks of stromatolites. It has nice laminae, it's domed. You even see little uh, columns forming in this rock. But as at least one or two people in the audience know, this is a, a mineral called malachite. It's a, it's a copper sulfate uh, or sulfide. It is not formed in conditions that are likely to have anything at all to do with biology. And so when one sees these structures in the very old rocks, one has to be a little cautious. And I think at this telling, we really don't know whether the domed laminated rocks in the oldest sediments that we know of are uh, telling us something about biology or not. We're simply ignorant. Well, may we do better with microfossils? Um, it turns out that there are cherts in this succession, but they're different from the cherts in Spitzbergen and many other younger fossiliferous rocks. Whereas the, the cherts in Spitzbergen formed at low temperature and actually preserve uh, very fine-scaled features of the rocks they replaced, most of the cherts in these old rocks 
formed by hot hydrothermal brines that actually obliterated textures of the rocks they were in. Nonetheless, with great persistence, Bill Schopf at UCLA and his former student, Bonnie Packer, found a small population of fairly scudsy filaments, which they, I think, correctly interpreted as biological. Now, it turns out the entire population of cells from this three and a half billion year old formation is much smaller than the average number of cells in one good fossiliferous thin section of Spitsbergen rock. And these are very poorly preserved. You can actually see the imprints of crystals that grew and distorted the fossils uh, after their death. Also, they're very simple. We don't really have, these are not diagnostic for any particular physiology, so it's very difficult to know what they are telling us about biology other than the non-trivial um, observation that biology was present three and a half billion years ago. But we know one other thing about these rocks, just as we were able to use sedimentary information to constrain the interpretation of the younger fossils, we can do that here as well. When you look at some of these beds, you see a series of red, white, and black chert beds. Now, it turns out that the fossils are in the black beds, and the black beds have a very interesting characteristic, and that is that as you actually follow these beds laterally, invariably, you will come to a point at which those black beds actually turn up or down and cut right across the red and the white beds. In fact, the red and the white beds were formed at the Earth's surface by normal sedimentary processes. The black beds are plumbing systems of ancient hydrothermal beds. So what that tells us is that these earliest fossils, consistent, if you will, with some of the predictions from the, the uh, comparative biology, were not cyanobacteria, were not things living at the Earth's surface, but in fact were living within these energy-rich fluid streams in, in hydrothermal environments. And what that means is it's very difficult to place them on the tree of life. We cannot, for example, tell whether or not they actually diverged after or before the last common ancestor of all living organisms. Finally, in some of the rocks that are deposited at the Earth's surface, in fact, fairly widely in these rocks, there's organic matter, and the organic matter has the expected isotopic signature of photosynthesis. So regardless of how we interpret those fossils, we at least believe the most likely explanation for the isotopic composition of the, the sediments is that the great ecological liberation of photosynthesis had already begun. Whether or not it was cyanobacterial photosynthesis, we don't really know. Last point. One final prediction from comparative biology is that life began under conditions where there was very little oxygen available. And uh, although many of the details of environmental history are encrypted in, in rather subtle clues within the rocks, one key is actually rather flamboyant. That is, these red rocks are something called banded iron formation. And banded iron formation, although not formed by and large within the last 1,800 million years, is part and parcel of most sedimentary sequences formed in the first half of Earth history. It turns out the reason for that is that these kind of sediments will only form 
if iron in solution can be carried through the oceans without coming into contact with oxygen. So this suggests, along with a host of other types of evidence, that the amount of oxygen present at the time this earliest biology that we know of was alive, the amount of oxygen was actually fairly small. It may or may not have been enough to support uh, respiration by single cells, but certainly not much more than that. Okay, well, where does that leave us? <laughs> Basically, we've learned that one can, by applying a certain logic and a certain set of procedures tease out a record of biological history from ancient rocks, rocks that are much older than those that contain the oldest animals. We know that we can trace that record of biology back at least three and a half billion years where the record begins to run cold, and that the first time we ever see a, a record of biology, we at least get a strong impression that a fair amount of microbial diversification had already occurred, that there were already ecosystems that were cycling carbon and sulfur and phosphorus and nitrogen, and that they included at least some sort of photosynthesis. So where that leaves us then is really stuck in an alien world. And the question is, how does life get from this unfamiliar world of three and a half billion years ago, a world in which there's no evidence of not only animals and plants, but no record even of, of uh, aerobic biology, no record of, of eukaryotic cells. How do we get from that record back to the record that we started with, the, the record that uh, shows the blossoming of animals? At that point, I'll take my cue from Shahrazad and say that that story is for tomorrow. Thank you. What Gerda said is that anyone who wishes to ask a question is welcome to do so, and the request is that you find one of the microphones on either side of the hall to ask the question. So we do want to give you plug too? Uh, yeah, I should have it there also. Is this, yeah. Uh, question uh, over here? Yeah. Um, you, you have, um, in, in going from Spitsbergen to the Bahamas, you found a modern equivalent of one of your old environments. Are, are there any possibilities for looking for a modern equivalent of the, um, uh, the, the, the North Pole Australian environments in, say, hot springs or bog iron deposits or something of that ilk? Yeah, th that's a good question. The question was, you can use modern environments to find uh, fairly close modern counterparts of some of the organisms that are encountered in later Precambrian deposits like Spitsbergen, can we actually go into environments today that are analogous to these hydrothermal plumbing systems found in the oldest rocks that we know of? And if we do, 
can we actually find modern organisms that will inform us about the biology of the fossils? And the answer is yes. Uh, it turns out that there's a small cottage industry of people who are actively looking for signs of biology in hydrothermal vents. Uh, people who work in Yellowstone Park, for example, people who work in deep sea rift vents. And uh, it turns out there's quite a diversity of, of life in there. Uh, it, it represents many different physiological ways of making a living. So the problem right now is not that uh, we don't know anything about life in those environments. The problem is that there's so much diversity in those environments and it's so poorly cataloged that we don't really know how to use it in quite the same way that we can use the, the more conventional biology as a ruler. Anything else? about uh, Martian rocks, uh, there's, a, sci there's a, a, a science fiction strand that theorizes about the possibility of non-carbon-based life forms. And I'm wondering if there's any actual scientific theorizing uh, in that area. Yeah, the, the question is, um, everything we've talked about and everything we know about uh, in life on this planet is based on the chemistry of carbon. Could you, in theory, think about non-carbon-based life? Um, and if so, would you have to be thinking about science fiction rather than science fact? Well, as some of you will know, uh, NASA has become seriously interested in questions like these because uh, at least pending what happens in Congress over the next several weeks, NASA will actually have for the first time in two decades a strong program in uh, planetary exploration and a program that will have as a major question uh, questions of the, the distribution of life in, in the universe. I, I think in all honesty that carbon is probably the stuff of life wherever we find it. The reason for that is that um, carbon is extremely versatile in terms of the kinds of bonds it can form, uh, bonds of many different energies, bonds that it can form molecules of many different functionalities. That simply isn't true of, of silica. Also, if you think about it, um, at temperatures where water is a liquid, carbon can exist in molecules that are gases, molecules, uh, substances that are dissolved, and solids. And again, that's simply not true of any uh, silica uh, minerals that I'm, that I'm aware of. So much though people have tried, uh, I don't think anyone has, to date, come up with a, a suitable substitute for carbon as the, the sort of skeletal framework for biology. Yes, Ah, okay. The, the question which my, my colleague at Harvard usually gets rather than me is if we look, many of these organisms are very similar. In fact, I'm arguing specifically similar to things that are living today. Is this an example of, of stasis? And, and the answer is yes. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to make a broad argument which is that stasis is not only the observed, but the experience 
expected, long-term stasis is what is expected of free-living bacteria. And so that in the bacterial world, we really do live in a world of accumulation, um, not just turnover. And I should also say that it's not either what's expected or what we see in eukaryotic organisms. Now, I've loaded the deck, and I will, I will admit that I'm going to load the deck again tomorrow. I'm going to show you predominantly fossils of eukaryotic organisms that are similar enough to living eukaryotes so that I can, with confidence, say, that's a red alga, or that's a foraminifer, or that's a green alga. I'm doing that because I'm interested in, in establishing the antiquity of the groups. But for every slide that I show you tomorrow, there's a dozen that I'm not going to show you, which are things that are not easily related to things that are alive today, are things that will be present for a few million years and then, then disappear. So yes, I think, I think stasis is, a, is, is a, a real observation, not just in the Precambrian, um, but throughout the history of life. And it is, I think, particularly dramatic in records like the cyanobacteria. And, and I'll just again leave you with a teaser that you kind of wonder why that should be so, because if you want to actually document evolutionary change in the course of a PhD thesis, you look at bacteria. So bacteria are capable of evolving on time scales recognized by NSF. And that is, you, you, one of the things we really have to explain about the cyanobacterial fossil record is how we actually reconcile this propensity for rapid change with the observation of stasis. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Does the uniqueness of, of the environment of Sharks Bay where you found the stromatolites and in the 600 million year old rocks tell you or suggest anything about the ancient environment that you didn't know before you went there, before you looked at those stromatolites? Or was it all what you, did it just sort of... Well, it, it, yes, it tells us certain things. Um, the reason for going to places like Shark Bay, and, and there are equivalents in the Caribbean and other places, is that they allow us to see processes going on that produce patterns that are common in, in the geologic record. I mean, what we see in these 800 million year old rocks is pattern and we need to infer the processes by which those patterns were generated. The beauty of Shark Bay is that it is one of the places in the world where you can see that pattern being generated. Now, I should say, you might ask, well, why is it that Shark Bay is a place where these microbial processes are still paramount? And the reasons seem to be, A, it has very high salinity, so there are the restricted representation by animals although there are sea snakes, which rather disconcertingly swim around while you're, while you're looking at these things. And also, it's a place where sedimentary particles, sand grains, are continually being washed in and out of the environment. And they will bury the stromatolites, and then they'll be exhumed again, so that uh, animals like corals, for example, simply can't gain a foothold in these environments, and so the microbial, process, microbial uh, 
structures persist. So in a sense, yes, it, it tells us something that's very hard to get at directly from the ancient rocks, and that's knowledge of process. We shouldn't overplay the similarity of Shark Bay to the ancient world because Shark Bay is, in a sense, a refugium that's based, that persists because environmental conditions don't allow animals to muscle the microbes out. Yes. colleague Dan Schrager postulating a snowball earth in the Neoproterozoic. Vis-a-vis um, -vis the idea of stasis and refugia, um, it would appear that we didn't have a snowball earth. Um, you care to comment on that? Okay. The, the, I'm, I'm always asked to explain my Harvard colleagues. Um, one of the things that we know, and I'll talk about this for the most part in the third lecture, is that between about 580 and 750 million years ago, that is just before the Cambrian ex explosion and its immediate antecedents, there was a series of at least four major ice ages. And we know, because one can, uh, under the right conditions, tell the uh, paleo latitude at which rocks were deposited, we know that at least some of that ice accumulated in continental glaciers at sea level within 10 degrees of the equator. I think that much seems to be increasingly observable. That's a pretty strong ice age. Uh, it was suggested by Joe Kirschvink at Caltech uh, in 1992 that one might have gotten into a condition where once it passed a certain threshold, the ice would actually essentially have a, have a runaway and completely cover the Earth in a snowball. Um, that paper was not much heeded when it was written, mainly because I think most uh, physical oceanographers and, and climate modelers wouldn't hear of it. Uh, Paul Hoffman and Dan Schrag, colleagues of mine at Harvard, have uh, resurrected this hypothesis because there are some very unusual chemical and physical correlates in sedimentary rocks associated with with these, uh, the record of, of glacial ice. Um, it's very clear, I think, that because many types of biology, not just bacteria and cyanobacteria, but by that late stage in Earth history, dozens if not hundreds of, of eukaryotic groups must have lived through those events. We simply can't think about a world in which a kilometer of ice paved the entire planet. Um, that said, biology is surprisingly accommodating. Uh, if you go down to Antarctica today, you'll find uh, a surprising diversity of eukaryotes living in uh, little environments formed by cracks in sea ice and this sort of thing. So. Um, I think the survival of biology could be accommodated in terms of a model where uh, an ice age was more severe than anything we see today. But at the end of the day, one way or another, you have to have refugia in which um, marine seaweeds attached to the seafloor and other types of organisms could survive. Having said that, there are some models uh, floating around, not yet published, that try to accommodate a snowball Earth and end up having uh, large unglaciated areas in, uh, 
in tropical oceans. So it's, it's not, I don't think it's a clincher. For people who don't like snowball earth, the survival of biology is not the stake through the heart that you might hope it would be. Well, our, our <laughs> Our speaker has had a very long day, and I was going to ask you to join me in thanking him, but you've done that already. Uh, and uh, I remind you that uh, we have two more lectures in this series, so please come back uh, tomorrow night. Thanks again.